very special indeed. Lately, I've preached a couple of sermons recently from the life of Moses, through whom God delivered His law to His people. And if you were to ask the average churchgoer to identify God's law, he or she would probably point to the Ten Commandments, at least for a start. They've uh, even been referred to as the top ten list in keeping with some popular uh, kinds of practices these days of making lists like that. But when our Lord Jesus was asked which commandment was the most important, He didn't cite any of the Ten Commandments, at least not directly. Instead, He cited another commandment, which along with a second, encompasses all of the Ten Commandments. And in so doing, He outlined for all generations to come what is our highest obligation toward God. Now we're going to be looking this morning at a text in Mark chapter 12. And in this chapter, Jesus has been answering questions from Pharisees and then Sadducees and scribes and teachers of the law. And uh, many of them were trying to trap Him, trying to catch Him in His words some way so they could condemn Him. But not all of the Pharisees and scribes were hypocrites, like so many were. We might think, for example, of Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, and who even assisted in the burial plans for Jesus after He was crucified. Well, in the same way, not all scribes were hypocrites either. Just as Nicodemus was a sincere seeker of God, we encounter in our text today a, a scribe who was sincerely seeking to know God as well and to serve God. And he had an interaction with Jesus in, in our text. Mark chapter 12, we're going to read verses 28 through 34. If you're able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> Uh, the Bible says, beginning in verse 28, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on no one dared ask Him any more questions. Thank you. Please be seated.
Now what we learn from this text, among other things, is what is most important to God is not how you behave. What is most important to God is not how you behave. Now if you're looking for loopholes, ways to behave however you like and still get away with it, well, this is not it. I didn't say God doesn't care how we behave, but the most important thing to God is not how we behave. Jesus didn't say the most important commandment was behave yourself, no. He said the most important commandment is to love God. To love God. That's what God values. That's what God seeks. God wants your heart. He wants you, your devotion, more than He wants burnt sacrifices and, and offerings and things of that nature, more than He wants strict obedience to all of these multitude of different laws and their interpretations. God wants your love, a relationship with you on that basis. And it's understandable, I think. I want you to think with me for a moment. Imagine that you have two children. Two children, one of them is very obedient, does everything you say without question. Unflinching obedience, quick response, yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am. Uh, an obedience that would rival the military and military discipline. Does everything that you desire of them, everything that you, you instruct them. And this child is full of talent, full of ability, but there's no real loyalty, no desire to spend time with you, to get to know you. In essence, no real love for you, just obedience to your office as parent. Otherwise, doing everything right. But then you have another child that is less than perfect, has little, if any, natural ability or talent. This child is prone to failure, makes a lot of mistakes. But this child wants to please you more than anything else. So this child would never willfully disobey, wouldn't even think of it. But this child just can't quite get it right, misunderstands somehow. It's not for lack of effort. This child is, is trying, doing their very dead level best, but just can't quite make it, can't quite get there. But this child wants to be with you. This child wants to learn from you. This child wants to be just like you and would follow you to the ends of the earth. Now of those two children, which child would you prefer to have? Little Mr. Perfect who doesn't give a hoot about you? Or little Mr. Messup who loves you and wants more than anything else to please you? Which kind of child do you think God prefers to have? Now let me ask you, which kind of child are you as a child of God? The point is, God is not interested as much in what you do or how well you do it as He is interested in your love, your love for Him and your love for others that flows out from that relationship you have with Him. 
Now it's true that some people obey God, but do it out of fear. They're afraid, afraid of the consequences, afraid of what God might do to them. They believe in God, but they've never really experienced a love relationship with God. And so they try to do what they think God wants them to do, but only because they fear what God might do to them if they don't. And so God becomes just some cosmic crossing guard, a planetary policeman who has to be appeased so that He will just leave them alone. About this time every year, there are people who fancy themselves to be adventurers who go and try to climb Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. And they do so typically with the help of native Nepalese Sherpas who live there, who are acclimated to the high altitude, who carry their packs and fix the ropes and things of that nature. But those Sherpas have a very fearful attitude to what they believe are the gods of the mountain, the mountain gods of Everest, if you will. They're careful about their actions on the mountain, careful to offer proper respect to the mountain for fear of displeasing the gods and incurring their wrath in some form of disaster. It's very dangerous up there at those altitudes. Disasters do happen. People die on Mount Everest. And so these Sherpas in their superstitious beliefs are afraid that they might do something that would offend the gods of the mountain and incur their wrath. Well, there are many Christians who live their lives in much the same way superstitiously imprisoned by their fear, obeying God's commands, not out of love or gratitude, but solely to avoid whatever consequences or punishment may accompany disobedience. Now to be sure, sin has consequences. Rightly so. But God wants an obedience which comes from love, not fear. When sin wreaks its havoc in our lives, it doesn't make God happy. It makes God sad. It breaks His heart because God loves us. And He knows that if we will simply turn our attention to Him and put our love in His direction, that our lives will shift. Our behavior will change because of it and accordingly. Now there are others who don't necessarily obey God out of fear, but they do so trying to buy God's blessings by doing what they think He wants. They're bartering for blessings, if you will. And it's true that God wants our obedience and He blesses obedience. But God sees through insincerity. Insincerity is as transparent to God as shrink-wrapped cellophane on a dime store trinket. Because God knows our hearts, and God wants love before obedience. He wants mercy rather than sacrifice. That comes from the Old Testament as well. This this scribe seemed to know it. He said, uh, loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself, that's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That comes from the Old Testament. Hebrews, or excuse me, Hosea 6, verse 6 says, 
God speaking. I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God over burnt offerings. And Jesus himself quoted that text on two separate occasions as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. God isn't so much interested in our checkboxes and the sacrifices that we feel like we have to make as part of some ritual to appease God or to buy His blessings. God's favor and God's blessing isn't for sale. But He showers it freely on those who love Him. That's where so many get the wrong idea. When they see those who love God and are, are blessed because of it, they think they can buy that. There's some accounts of that in the book of Acts, as a matter of fact. We don't have time to go into it. But a lot of Christians approach God in the wrong way. God's blessings and even eternal life are a byproduct of loving God. There's an old story that's been told probably in every culture and every language throughout the ages. It varies a bit from place to place, culture to culture perhaps, but the, the storyline is the same and we, we keep repeating it. There's, there's some poor village girl who falls in love with a pauper who turns out to be the prince in disguise, right? You know that story, you've, you've, you've seen it, you've heard it, you've read it. But it isn't the, the wealth and the trappings of royalty that she seeks. She loves him. All of that other stuff is just a wonderful byproduct of the relationship that she has. She loved him when he was a pauper. She loves him. That's the important thing. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. He blesses us, but we love him whether he does or not because of who he is and what he's done. And if you truly love God, God knows it. He knows your heart. He knows if you're trying. You don't have to worry that God's going to kick you out of heaven if you fail, if you mess up, if you fall. God knows if you're trying and if you're training as you have to to conquer your anger, for example, or to tame your tongue. And stop repeating gossip and such. To, to be more patient and forgiving. To love your neighbor as you should. Even if your neighbor is not all that lovely. God knows if you're seeking to have a pure heart. God knows what your affections are. So make it your first priority to love Him. And you'll be amazed at how these other things come more easily to you because of the love you have for Him, because of the relational interaction you have with Him, it changes you inside, your spirit, your attitudes. You will be more loving toward your neighbor. You will be more patient. You will be less inclined to rage and anger and to take offense and to, to engage in any sort of things that are displeasing to God. Because there is a God-given desire to please the ones we love. And if we love God, we will have that desire to please Him, to live the life that He desires for us.
Well, we're told not only that we should love God, but we're also told how we should love God. I'm going to speed through these rather quickly for the sake of time, but we're to love God with all of our heart. That's our spirit, our will, the executive center of human life. It's where we make decisions, where we make choices for all of who we are. It's the place of character. And Dallas Willard says, those with a well-kept heart are those, who's, those persons who are prepared for and capable of responding to the situations of life in ways that are good and right. Their will functions as it should to choose what is good and avoid what is evil. Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart. We should love God with all of our hearts and with all of our souls. Our souls are what tie all of the parts of us together. As the heart or the spirit or the will is the center of human life, the soul is the comprehensive whole of a human life. Been defined as that dimension of the person that interrelates all of the other dimensions so that they form one life. The soul, all of who we are. Uh, I, I, I see this text saying from the inside to the outside, from the heart to the soul, and then from the mind to the strength, from the mind to the body, with all your mind, our thoughts and our feelings. Thought is how we bring ideas, bring things before our minds and consider them. It's how we access concepts, things beyond our present environment, past, present, future. And feelings, which are an indispensable part of that, feelings are what incline us toward or away from the things that come before our mind in thought. They're interrelated. Let me, let me give you a quick example. Think for a moment how you feel about such things as food or about automobiles, about family, about love about music, about bluegrass music, about rap music, about God. You see how thinking of those things as they come before your mind, they affect and impact your feelings, whether positively or negatively. They always go together, and together we can refer to them as the mind. And we're to love God with all of our minds, to bring God before our consciousness and let that change us and affect us. And finally, with all your strength, with all your strength, the author of Ecclesiastes, who by tradition is Solomon, contemplating the brevity of life, he wrote, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, with all your strength. Our strength is tied up with our, our physical being. That's how we exercise and manifest strength. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Colossians says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. So if that's true of human pursuits, of earthly pursuits, how much more is it true of the greatest and most important of all human pursuits? The most noble of all human endeavors, and that is loving God and living in relationship with God. It is what we were created to do. Loving God fully and completely above and beyond everything else is the most important and worthy of all human ambitions. 
But you know what makes loving God easy? What makes loving God easy is recognizing that God first loved us in the person of His Son, Jesus. The Bible tells us God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we cared one whit for God, God loved us and sacrificed to save us, to wipe away our sin, to put us in right standing. And knowing what we have received from God makes it easy, I think, to love God in return. And the first response that we ought to make, the first act of love that we should direct toward the God who has loved us, is trusting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The Son of God given for us that we might be in relationship with God again. That's the first step. Have you ever done that? I suspect most of us have. If so, perhaps you've drifted away from that. Perhaps you've strayed from the God you love. You've neglected a faith that was once at the very center of your life. It meant everything to you. You wouldn't be the first to fall away. There's an old hymn we sing from time to time, Come Thou Fount. It was written by a clergyman named Robert Robinson when he was just 23 years of age. One of the verses in that hymn contains these words, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, those words proved to be somewhat prophetic for Robinson because in his later years, though he remained a clergyman all of his life, he, he was prone to lapses into sin. And he was convicted in conscience by that. Well, it's said that Robinson was once traveling in a coach in which a young woman was seated across from him humming a hymn. She asked Robinson what he thought of it, not knowing that he was the composer. And when she did, he was overcome with emotion, with tears welling in his eyes. He responded, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. You ever felt that way? If so, I've got good news. You can have those feelings again. You can return to the God you love and who has loved you beyond measure. You can be what God desires you to be. The most important thing in that equation is loving God because He loves us. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful for your love, for your amazing grace. We once were lost, but now we're found. We, we were blind, but now we see. And I pray, God, that we might respond to your love with love of our own for you, first and foremost, as the most important thing. Our Lord Jesus told us so. And may we, as his followers, let that love that we share with you flow through us and extend to others. 
May we recognize them as created in your image and love them as we love ourselves. And God, if we can just do those things, all of the rest of the law is subsumed under them. We have fulfilled it all. Help us do it, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together hymn number 490.